This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Rob Gerth, Director of Marketing and Communications for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is April 2nd, 2020, and we're talking with Andrew Ward about societal shifts and how your organization can actually plan for things like COVID-19 and a world pandemic, believe it or not. Andrew is a professor in the Department of Management in the College of Business at Lehigh University. He conducts research on issues related to corporate governance, including CEO succession, CEO compensation, CEO board relations, reputation, and leadership. He's also working on a book titled Shift Happens, which is a great title, Andrew, for a book. Thanks. And, and thanks for having me this this afternoon. Oh, glad to have you. Um, and I, I'm assuming that the whole uh, pandemic thing is going to be in your book now? Uh, well, that's a good guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Yes, it will be covered for sure. Uh, it's actually not one of the societal shifts that we'll be framing the book around as we're kind of looking forward into the future rather than uh, things that are happening right now in the present. But pandemics are, are certainly things that are exacerbated by, by trends that we cover, such as uh, rapid urbanization, and has impacts on uh, lots of other things like, uh, like changing demographics. Yeah, and I'm sure this isn't the first, uh, well, it certainly isn't the first pandemic and probably won't be the last. Right, yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of the pandemic, though, I want to take a really specific example to start, uh, and I think it might give us a good jumping off spot. So there's a grocery store chain in Texas, I think it's called HEB, and they actually, there's, there was an article in the paper that they actually planned for the pandemic. They were thinking it would be flu or something like that. And, of course, they didn't see the whole toilet paper thing happening. But um, what, what was it about this supermarket that was this chain of supermarkets that was on target where the rest of the country wasn't prepared? Um, I, I think it's actually more surprising that this one store was prepared rather than the others that, that weren't prepared, right? So, Because uh, most of us don't really think that far into the future or how the world is changing around us. Uh, you know, businesses also run by individuals, you know, are the same way. Uh, so businesses tend to focus on executing their business in the environment they face today and spend relatively little time thinking about what is, what is coming down the pipe. Um, I mean, really, we all had a chance to see this coming when it began in China and started getting uh, publicity in, in January and started spreading. So it's not so much that we can't see it coming. It's really that we don't want to. We prefer not to make changes in our lives until we're forced to do that. Uh, and yet when you have big changes like that, like this, you know, change is, is going to be forced upon us. Uh, and it is those who are prepared and take that early action that have better outcomes. So it's actually, I think, more surprising that there was this store that um, that were prepared, and, and kudos to them for doing that. Well, can you give us some examples of, of some things that caused societal shift in the past, like some actual events? Or, like, is, was 9-11 a societal shift? Uh, so... I would say not really, right? That's that's a an event, and there's there's certainly these individual events uh, like uh, like what's happening now or nine eleven uh, that are uh, sort of big events, big crises, big disruptors, uh, and most of the 
uh, things that we're talking about in terms of societal shifts are more of these kind of big continuous disruptors that, that happen over a, a, a longer period of time rather than being uh, sort of individually uh, event-driven. Uh, and uh, I mean, one of the things about these individual events is that when you have a kind of immediate obvious threat, uh, you know, people can be mobilized to take action to overcome it. Uh, so as difficult and painful as uh, it can be, and you know, as we're seeing at the moment, it can be done. Uh, it's often much harder to mobilize people to combat these continuous incremental disruptors like, you know, like climate change, for example. Um, you know, when there's a climate change event, like a, like a hurricane, uh, people will jump into action. Uh, but even uh, though we're facing, you know, higher and higher frequency of these events, it's hard to mobilize people into making changes to their everyday lives to address it. And so that's uh, why we're thinking about this. And it's why, why people like Greta Thunberg, movements like Extinction Rebellion, are trying to draw our attention to these kind of emerging trends and emerging crises before it's too late. But equally, it's why most people are ignoring these things. Now we're talking about giant crises uh, because there's a lot going on around us at the moment. But right. let's take something like um, an example, I think, is Amazon Prime and coming up with the idea of two-day shipping that solved a problem that no one even knew existed. And now, and now everybody wants two-day shipping. So they made a problem for all the other businesses. Is, is that a societal change, a societal shift? Um, so I, I, w I wouldn't necessarily even say that uh, Amazon Prime, you know, the two-day shipping solved a problem that didn't exist, right? Rather, <laughs> okay. Rather, I think of it as, as taking some of the sort of friction out of the system and, and the problem that was already there. I mean, so if you think about shopping, right, in general and, and you know, the shipping of products in, in particular, we have a situation where, you know, somebody makes a decision to purchase a product, makes the purchase, and then has to wait for the product. That waiting is, is that friction in the system. And so that, that's always been there. So in purchasing a product in the store, that friction doesn't exist. You, you go into the store, maybe a limited choice, but um, the, you can buy the product immediately and there's no friction in that uh, system. There are other frictions, like having to take time to drive there uh, to the store and shop and that sort of thing. But in purchasing online, or as we previously did it from a catalog, uh, there's always that friction or delay between purchasing the product and receiving it. Amazon, in introducing uh, Prime two-day shipping, reduced that friction. Now, instead of waiting a week or, or so, we've waited two days. Now, in many cases, it's one day. Uh, but one of the strange things, though, is that the, most of us just kind of accept the friction that remains in the system. And then it changes, and we think, wow, that's great. Now I only have to wait two days. And then we're like, how did we ever live without that? <laughs> exactly. But uh, so even though over time things have improved and that friction has been reduced, we don't think about what if that friction gets reduced further? How will that change our behavior? What if instead of two days, we could get virtually anything in, say, 15 minutes, you know, flown to us via a drone? Uh, you know, how does that change behavior? So in, now instead of ordering you know, a pound of coffee to make coffee at home, you could just get a piping hot cup of coffee straight from Starbucks. Um, you know, we, 
now we don't have to keep a drawer full of batteries or spare pens and other things uh, if we could get things almost instantly when we need it. Uh, so, you know, I think Amazon Prime changed how we shop and shifted our behavior more away from retail stores to online shipping, but many of those things that we didn't need instantly, but, but also didn't want to wait a week or more for. Right. Uh, and that's going to keep changing, right? So, and it's going to keep changing that shift from retail to online, and it will move more and more the faster the sh shipping gets, right? So it's just taking friction out of that system. Uh, and that's a, how a lot of these shifts happen, I think, in smaller but meaningful increments. Uh, and so from a business perspective, you have to think about that. I mean, in this instance, if you're a retailer, whether you're online or offline, you kind of have to think about uh, how those shifts happen and, and sort of preparing, preparing for those. Uh, so when one competitor, whether it's Amazon or somebody else, comes in with the next thing, like two-day shipping or one-day shipping or two-hour shipping or 30-minute shipping or 15-minute shipping or whatever it is that's just reducing <laughs> that friction uh, more and more, uh, then you just got to be prepared for that to happen and, and know how to kind of respond and, and be proactive in that. And now, I know in, your, in the book that you're working on, you're following eight major societal shifts. Can you run through those and, and give us a little example of what each one is? Sure. Uh, so we're looking at eight, eight different things, right? So uh, the changing demographics, uh, climate change, uh, big data, fast data, uh, rapid urbanization, social commerce, uh, blockchain, technology advances, in particular artificial intelligence, and uh, energy generation and storage. Um, and so just I mean, just a, briefly, a, a few words on each, each one. So, yes, please. Um, yeah, so changing demographics. I mean, I think we have two stories going on in the world now, right? So there's in the developed economies, uh, you know, like the U.S., uh, people are generally living longer, healthier lives, uh, but they're also having children later and fewer of them. And so we're seeing an aging uh, society and a de declining population. Uh, in uh, developing economies, we're, we're seeing a very different uh, sort of picture. We've got a younger, booming population, uh, and there's, there's vast potential there for sort of economic development, and so we'll, we'll see... A, maybe a big sort of shift in the economic pattern of the world there. Um, urbanization, if we think about rapid urbanization, uh, you know, back in the 1950s, less than 30% of the world lived in urban areas. By 2008, we, we crossed that threshold of 50%, where now more than 50% of the world lives in an urban area. By 2050, this is going to be probably 75%. Um, the U.S. is already pretty urbanized, but you're going to see huge growth in urban areas uh, in Asia, in Africa particularly, and this development of these sort of big mega, mega cities, uh, which continue to get bigger and bigger. And, you know, that, that has big implications for things like the spread of pandemics, right, when we're all sort of packed into, into small areas and relying on... Uh, public transportation and, and dense, dense populations. Do you think that will, not to interrupt you, but do you think that will be, that will turn some of the, slow some of the urbanization, this whole pandemic that we're going through right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what we're going through right now is, is certainly going to give people pause to think, right? And, and these people who are planning urban areas, because, you know, on the one hand, urban areas are, are sort of very efficient uh, places to live. People like living in them. They're, they're, there's just tremendous amounts of, 
uh, benefits to these urban areas, but at the same time, they come with potential costs, right? So, uh, and the, the spread of pandemics uh, is is one of those potential uh, big costs for for urban areas. And so, people thinking about, and I, I'm sure now, after this, or you know, people are doing it in real time now, but afterwards, people are going to look back and reflect on. Uh, what's happening in cities and kind of thinking about, well, how, how do we shut down a city? How do we really uh, have the capability to uh, control that sort of population and, and shut down a city to be able to stop the spread of, uh, of things uh, like pandemics? So, yeah, so I think there's going to be big implications for, for urbanization. Um, uh, so our next one is climate change. Uh, we're focused uh, on climate change as a big uh, a shift. We're seeing this huge, dramatic rise in these major weather events. I mean, we track uh, sort of these weather events that cause more more than a billion dollars uh, worth of damage, and the just number of those over the last forty years has just escalated uh, sort of tremendously. And you know, that's a that's a big factor. Uh, sort of relatedly. Uh, energy generation and storage is is one that we're looking at. Um, you know, there's a vast potential to shift energy generation both at the um, grid level, but also in terms of micro uh, generation. Uh, we're trying to see a shift to uh, renewable uh, energy, uh, but storage is key to that, right? So there's the problem with renewable energy uh, is that the generation of it is is unpredictable. You know, you don't you know when the sun's out when it's not out when the wind's blowing when it's not not blowing uh, and also obviously the sun is only producing energy during daylight hours a lot of energy is used when the sun goes down how how do you, how do you store that energy uh, and to be able to transfer it uh, within within time uh, and it's also going to lead once some of these uh, technological hurdles are overcome that to the transformation of transportation, digital devices, all sorts of uh, wearables and kind of other uh, industries that will be spawned from that. Um, the next is big data and fast data. And, and by fast data, we mean sort of data that is then analyzed in, uh, in near re real time so that it can, it can be used straight away. Um, we're currently analyzing only a tiny, tiny fraction of the data that's collected. Uh, and there's just just such a huge potential in so many areas, particularly in healthcare, right? And the use of of data and big data in healthcare and addressing diseases, you know, addressing things like like pandemics. Uh, I mean, one of the keys that everybody's talking about now in in terms of controlling this pandemic is is the lack of uh, sort of information and data that we have about. Uh, it, it spread and who has it and, and testing and things like that. Uh, then we're looking also at uh, technological advances, uh, sort of whether it's robotics, Internet of Things or something, but particularly uh, artificial, in, artificial intelligence and how AI will transform the workplace and uh, will, will disrupt many uh, professions, occupations, particularly white-collar jobs. Uh, and then our last two are social commerce and blockchain. And the, the common theme here is trust, right? The, the, the way uh, trust uh, has 
Um, we've really seen a transformation in, in trust in, in society and the, and the decline of trust in institutions, whether those institutions are you know, Congress or the Supreme Court or public schools or the healthcare system or, or churches or whatever it is. We've just, uh, banks, businesses, we've seen this big decline uh, in trust over the, the last uh, 40 years in the, in the institutions of society. And, and where, where uh, what are we using as a, as a basis for trust now? Uh, and so two, these two things in social commerce, these peer-to-peer platforms that we're using more, uh, uh, trusting more our peers and reviews and things like that, and uh, these platforms like Uber and Airbnb, where we do things that we thought we'd never do, right? Getting to cars with strangers or, or staying in strangers' uh, houses. It's, it's just reflecting a big uh, change in the nature of trust. And then there's the rise of social influencers, the people who are uh, people that, not necessarily celebrities, but uh, people uh, in uh, in spheres, whether it's um, you know somebody talking about uh, recipes or uh, looking after their dogs or, or whatever it is that uh, you've seen this rise of uh, social influencers who are uh, you know creating a new basis basis for trust through relationships, and then the finally there's there's blockchain, which is also all about trust, right? So uh, we've heard of uh, Bitcoin, probably, and other cryptocurrencies, uh, and but what block the underlying technology of blockchain is, is all about is is just connecting secure uh, records of of transactions uh, and and digital uh, products, so that uh, we can uh, use and and have a secure record of uh, different transactions, and and so uh, that has the potential to. Uh, sort of replace potentially a lot of institutions. And so you're seeing uh, blockchain being used in financial services a lot right now, but also in other areas like uh, healthcare and digital uh, health records and, and areas like that. So, yeah. Is there, is there a, is there a hierarchy of these? Like, do you, can you say, Oh, here's the, here's the one I think is the one we should be watching the most. And here's the one that no one's really paying any attention to. And, and, uh, somebody should be paying attention to or and you know this one's not as big a concern immediately but long term is is there do you have any kind of hierarchy there's no real hierarchy right because it, it really depends on your industry your business uh, you know which, which one of these is going to have the biggest impact will vary for for different uh different people and for different uh different businesses and i think uh the ones if you know if i had to pick one that's uh, sort of primary and one that that's a, a kind of sleeper that nobody's really talking about. I think the yeah, if you're pinning me down to one, I'll kind of join the voices who say that climate change is more imminent than we think and more severe than we think. Right? It's also one of them that's going to impact everyone, uh, even though it will impact some dramatically more than others. Um, but as I alluded to before, you know even here in the US, if you look at the number of weather events that have caused more than a billion dollars worth of damage, right? Uh, in the 1980s, we had 28 of those events. 1990s, we had 52. The 2000s, we had 59. And in this last decade, in the 2010s, we had 119 events which caused wow. over a billion dollars of damage for a total of $800 billion and over 5,200 5, lives. 
Uh, and so that that pace of e escalation of those sorts of events, you know, should be a scary statistic to everyone. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's not just the coastal areas. Um, in this last decade, every state uh, had at least one billion dollar weather related event. So it's, it's something that's growing rapidly, becoming uh, more and more serious. And, uh, you know, we, we see these impacts. Uh, whether it's hurricanes or wildfires or, or whatever it is, but we um, uh, we don't necessarily connect them to to climate change, but it's, it's certainly evidence of of uh, ch changes in our weather, right? Which is our climate. Right. And so, and then for our the sleeper, the the one that I think nobody is really talking about, which I think is going to have a big impact, is this whole. Uh, energy generation and storage, right? As I said before, I think it will have a huge impact on a lot of uh, areas, whether that's you know transportation and the shift to electric vehicles, but also whether it's wearables, mobile devices, uh, um, as as well as this kind of more micro level generation and storage of of power. You know, when it comes to storage, the other thing I think of, or energy generation of energy, the other thing I the other thing I think of is the the countries that aren't first world countries, I guess, um, like you said at the very beginning, are their population is growing there. And of course, all those people are going to want to use energy. Uh, and that's one that seems like a societal shift too, in the demographic area. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mean, from an energy perspective, I, mean, I think it, the hope is that just like um, the developing world kind of leapfrogged over in, in telecommunications kind of never really went to, to landline phones. They just jumped straight to, to cell phones right. uh, that uh, as the energy demand explodes in, in the de developing world, they'll, they'll jump straight to renewables rather than uh, the uh, older fossil fuel technologies that, that we have. And, you know, the other advantage is obviously in those parts of the world, the, they're, um, advantaged in their ability to uh, capture renewable uh, energy, particularly solar. So, so what, what is it in us? Like, I'm thinking of the guy, you, you talked about floods. I'm thinking of the guy on the news that's uh, standing next to his house that's been flooded, you know, for the millionth time by the Mississippi River or whatever. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to rebuild again. It'll be the third time. I'm thinking, really? You're going to rebuild <laughs> again? Right. It's yeah. Same with CEOs. Is there something that with the denial of it all is just too great? Yeah, in, in in some in some ways, you know, we you know we don't like change, right? And and so we we want to be able to rebuild where we we live. You know, our, our families are there, our, our employments there, our, all our connections are there, our networks are there, and and so you know, it becomes people are very reluctant and only sort of make these moves when when forced to. I mean, if if we look, um, you know, 40% of the U.S. population lives on the coast right now. Uh, and so you, you see more and more of these uh, coastal weather events, uh, and you, you wonder if that's going to change. But, you know, people still want to live by the coast. Uh, and so it's only really when people are... are are forced to to make changes that they uh, will make those changes, and you know I think the same is true for for CEOs, right? They're um, 
I mean, I think part of the problem is is there's this very short-term focus uh, in U.S. business, and, and there's shorter and shorter tenures of of CEOs, uh, and a lot of these things that we're talking about, you know, it's going to be 10, 15 years before people are literally forced into sort of action. And so, what we're trying to to say is, well, let, let's let's kind of think about this, but um, the incentives aren't necessarily there for for people to to think of them if they're you know being rewarded on a short-term basis if they're if their likely tenure is only uh, you know sh- short relatively short two three four years then people aren't necessarily going to be thinking about well yeah we could do this now but we're not going to really benefit dramatically for 10 or 15 years i guess same thing goes for government governments and even small businesses that it's like i've got to make money right now i can't afford to invest because it's about investment and taking the time, right? It's about investment and taking time, yeah. I and mean, I think I, governments, though, I mean, governments should absolutely be paying attention to this right? because I mean, governments both have the responsibility to manage some of these, uh, the outcomes from the, some of these societal shifts, but governments are also in the position to be able to shape some of these, right? And if you think about urbanization, if you think about energy generation, even in terms of demographics and uh, you know how demographics change uh, over the course of a, a decade through immigration policy and and other sort of policies and and of course ch- climate change which we've been talking about as uh, one of those areas where um, the UN and other bodies are trying to get governments to work uh, together to be able to address these these um, the causes of climate change and so you know governments particularly should be paying attention to these because not only will they have to address the outcomes of these but they can also actually fundamentally change some of the the direction of some of these these shifts um and and small businesses uh, yeah absolutely the uh, small businesses are often more concerned with survival in the short short term they have limited resources to look beyond the immediate. Uh, but and on the other hand, many of those uh, companies that uh, are now you know, the household names, the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Teslas, you know, they were all small companies not very long ago, right? So, uh, and they, those are companies who have been thinking about these changes and, and how these uh, sort of impacts of, uh, of these shifting uh, technologies and, and societal shifts uh, and have taken advantage of those. And so, yes, yeah, so small businesses should, as much as they're able, also kind of think about these things. And are there any factors besides denial <laughs> that are uh, that make it hard to, to plan for these shifts? Um, yeah, I, I think a, a couple of things. Well, one is, again, that kind of short-term fo- focus that, uh, kind of trying to execute on what what we do in the environment that we're in is is the main focus of a lot of businesses. But also, I, I think there's that um, in order to really think about these shifts and where they're going, you you have to be willing to kind of embrace what I call wild futures, right? Things that are very the future that looks very different from. Uh, what today's environment looks like and both to have the imagination of uh, to be able to think about what that future could look like and 
the uh, sort of confidence to say, okay, yes, that actually could happen. If it does happen, how should we be sort of planning for that? Uh, when, you know, there's, there's a good chance that may not happen, right? And so you're looking at different potential outcomes, some of which are going to happen, some of which are, are not going to happen. And, you know, you just don't know at this point. So you're, you're planning for things which, um, yeah, in maybe 80% of the, the time is not going to work out. I and mean, I kind of think about, uh, as companies think about these things, almost like uh, you're acting as a venture capitalist, right? So if you think about a venture capitalist, a venture capitalist is investing in lots of different uh, small businesses and, and, and technologies that they're placing these bets on, knowing that probably 90% of them are not going to work out. But the 10% that are going to work out, it's going to be huge, and they're going to make, make their returns uh, and, and make their returns on their investment for the whole pool just on, on those that do work out. And, and so, you know, it's the same thing uh, as people are thinking about these potential future states. It's like, yeah, there are many of them. Uh, the, the future is not going to look exactly like we think it might look, but some of those they are, uh, and some of those are going to have huge consequences for uh, society and, and for individual businesses. And so uh, they need to uh, be able to kind of think about those and, and place, place bets in those areas. And can you give us examples of companies that are doing it right? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the, the best examples, I mean, I think very few companies are doing it right, I would say. Okay. Uh, uh, and that's, that's part of the problem, and that's, that's uh, part of what we're trying to address here in, in looking at these societal shifts. But I, I think one company that, that's doing a, a great job of this, if, even though they are getting uh, some backlash from, from investors on it, uh, is, is Alphabet or, or you know, the parent company of Google. Because uh, they, they know that their core business, Google, is not going to last forever. I mean, uh, it, you know, technology will change the way we behave, the way we interact with things will, will change, the way we get our information and, and uh, advertising and that sort of stuff. It's, it's not going to last forever. So Google you know, has this whole uh, other bets division, uh, part of which is Google X, which is actually why they kind of created the parent company of Alphabet is so they could have Google, but then they could have all of these other things. Uh, and so they're, they're really conscious about thinking about what are, the, what are the big problems that they could potentially solve? What are the billion-person problems uh, that uh, the, the society needs to address, and, and how can they start investing in these different technologies, whether, you know, whether it's... Um, <clears throat> balloons, uh, internet being provided by systems of balloons, whether it's uh, digital glasses, wearable technology, whether it's self-driving cars, you know, they are, um, or whether it's drone technology. They're investing in all of these different types of areas, uh, which they think are going to be um, big, big problems in the, in the future. And so how do companies get there. So I, I, I'll date myself a little bit, but in the 80s, I remember reading the book In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters and Robert Waterman. Mm -hmm. And I remember what stood out for me at the time was this term skunk works. And you actually mention it in some of your materials. Um, 
that excellent companies always had some sort of small group off to the side that was not reporting to anybody except to the top people. And their job was to figure out what was, what was the next big thing. And I think if I'm, I'm not conflating these things, but I think that Xerox had a skunk works and actually invented the mouse and the PC and the, the little folders that we now click on instead of typing in lines of code. Um, what is that? What the way to go? Some version of that the company should be doing? Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, Xerox did a fantastic job, right? In uh, they had this uh, Xerox Park, which was in in Palo Alto, California. The problem was that it was the the main headquarters of Xerox was uh, on the East Coast uh, in in New York State, uh, and uh, and so they they had this Xerox Park, which which did a lot of um, amazing things. They they invented all the things that you that you talked about and many others like laser printers and kind of uh, all these other things. Um, and because Xerox was thinking about the future, and obviously Xerox were in a paper generating business, right, in terms of the office machines and copiers and, and things like that. And they were thinking, well, what what if that business goes away? What if we are moving towards a paperless office and an electronic uh, office? And so they set up Xerox Park and uh, sent a lot of brilliant people out there. Uh, and they came up with all this, all this technology, which we take for granted uh, today. Their big mistake, though, was in uh, keeping it completely separate uh, and never sort of connecting it back to their to their main business, right? And so uh, that that's uh, what what you uh, and never really kind of thought about the commercial aspects of uh, launching these sort of into into products so much. Uh, and so you know, other companies like uh, Apple, so famously. Uh, Steve Jobs went to visit uh, Xerox Park and saw all this stuff, and and then you know turned it into the the Lisa and then the Macintosh. Uh, but uh, the 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 problem with Xerox is that they uh, they they never kind of went into kind of thinking about how to uh, tie this back in into the main business. And you know the, I think that's where uh, I would say. Alphabet or Google is is different in that, uh, you know, they're very much kind of focused on, yeah, here are these big ideas, here are these big problems that we're uh, looking at, at solving, but they're also very uh, conscious about, is this uh, viable commercially, you know, within within five years or so. So they'll and and if it's not, then they, they won't do it. They'll they'll abandon that that uh, project. Uh, and so they're they're very much thinking about the the um, commercial applications and implications of what they're doing, and turning that into part of the sort of core business of, of the company. And you see, you know, how they've done that over time. You know, starting from a search engine, uh, and then they sort of develop Gmail and and Android operating systems, and kind of all of these things, Google Maps, and uh, so on. All all of which kind of came out of these other sort of explorations, but then are sort of brought in and tied into into the the main business of the of the company uh, and so that that's really the the key difference um, you know Xerox had I said great ideas uh, they were doing almost everything right 
uh, except that one one key aspect. <laughs> yeah, they didn't finish it up. What what um, so what can companies? I know that your your the book that you're working on is going to uh, deal with this. So let's let's talk about some of the things that companies can do, whether there's tools or techniques or blueprints that they can use to plan for disruptions and and how I guess part of what you have to do in your in your book is is talk about how you talk people into thinking that this is important. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, th th that's one of the things. And maybe um, these these whole disruptions that we're we're seeing right now kind of will then jolt people into thinking, oh, actually, we do need to uh, kind of think about uh, the future and and disruption because it can happen very quickly, right, as we're now discovering. Um, but I think you know some of the keys. If we kind of think about. Uh, some of the steps that we we go through and and, and talk about um, in uh, in advising companies about how to do this, and the, the first key is to really conceptualize your company. You know what what is your company really? And you know, if take an example like Ford, for example, uh, you know, is Ford in the car and truck business? Uh, is it in the transportation business? Is it in the uh, sort of technology business, you know, what, what business is it in? And so how you conceptualize what you do uh, is important to appropriately sort of open up the, the possibilities to what you might do uh, in the future, right? And especially as, as the, those conditions, those markets, uh, markets change. Uh, then uh, the second thing is to kind of think about each of these societal shifts or any others uh, that you might kind of think are going to be uh, potentially important to your organization. And kind of just kind of think about uh, each of them. Now, as I said before, some of them are going to be more applicable than others to any given organization. And you know, to to take on all eight is very uh, complex. And and maybe there's two or three of them that are are really going to have a big impact on on your business. And so you you sort of then take those two or three or, or four that, that have a major impact on the company, but not just on the, your company. It's like on your strategy, on your customers, on your market, on your suppliers, uh, you know, which, which are going to have big impact on, on any of those constituents or stakeholders. Um, and then kind of thinking about, you know, how do we know if the world is moving in a particular direction? What are what we call some of the sort of key indicators of these societal shifts? Uh, we kind of abbreviate that to KISS metrics, uh, but, but that tell you which way the world is moving. Uh, for example, you can have a metric about uh, life expectancy, uh, measuring changing demographics, or population density for urbanization, or, or whatever it is. That, but, but basically indicators that are relevant to your product or market that also connect uh, to those different societal shifts. And then it's like taking these uh, indicators and saying, okay, how, how might these dials be turned or how, how might they vary uh, in different ways, in different combinations? And sort of to build scenarios or, or really pictures or stories of what the world might look like uh, in 5, 10, 15 years' time, uh, sort of based, based on these different uh, indicators. And then when you've got the, those different 
uh, futures mapped out, those different scenarios, those different stories. It's like, uh, how would your company thrive or even survive in that environment? Uh, would your current strategy work in that environment? Would it not work in that environment? What elements would work? What elements would not work? And then at the same time, thinking about for a successful company in that environment, what would that successful company look like? Uh, what would it be doing? What sort of activities would it be engaging in? And then from there, you kind of get that gap analysis, if you like, to, to think about how what we're doing currently is different from what we would need to do to be successful in that environment. And then to think about what are the resources and capabilities that you need to build or acquire to be able to uh, become successful in that environment. Uh, and where those gaps are, it's like we'll, we'll tell you what are the, some, some of the bets or investments that you need to make. What are, what are you, if you're thinking about yourself conceptualizing yourself as a venture capitalist, as we talked about before, it's like what, what are those investments that you need to make which will cover those, those shortfalls uh, in the future? And then the last thing is that that's basically the process, but it's also important to note that it's not a one one and done process, right? There's no good just kind of doing this now and then taking this, this uh, plan off the place 15 years from now and say, well, did this work out? Uh, but it, but it's uh, tracking this over time so you can see is the world moving in, in one direction or is it moving in another direction? And so is one scenario becoming more likely and another scenario becoming less likely? Or do we need to kind of redo this whole thing again and uh, and go through that exercise again? And how the the other half of them that I mentioned earlier, and you were like, yeah, is um, how do you get some? If you're not the CEO of the company, how do you get someone to buy into this? Because there's a lot of resources that are involved. There's there's personnel that have to be dedicated to this, and uh, money that will probably have to be spent uh, to get the research. How do, you, do you have any advice for somebody who's trying to look on this side? Yeah, and in order for this to happen successfully uh, in, or, in an organization, it, it really has to be driven uh, by the, the senior leaders in the, in the company. They, they, the people who are responsible for uh, what the company does and its strategy uh, need to be the people who are guiding this process and think, thinking about this. Uh, and so, yeah, in, in as much as, as somebody else in the organization can um, kind of position, it's like, well, we, we need to be able to think about this because in a lot of instances, if the world changes dramatically, then, you know, we, we're going to go out of business. I mean, it, it's, I think one of the things that's really interesting about what's going on right now with uh, the COVID-19 crisis is that we're seeing, uh, I mean, just just today, there was, you know, the new unemployment numbers came out and it's 6.6 million, 10 times higher than it's ever been before, except for last week, where, and it's twice what it was uh, last week. Uh, and so you're seeing this massive shift where you've got a lot of companies which are effectively shutting down, right? Uh, and uh, going out of business, e even if it's temporarily, um, but but 
not able to operate in the environment that we're currently in. And on the other hand, you've got other uh, businesses which are producing as fast as they can and growing as fast as they can and, and ramping up as fast as they can because the, that environment shifts in line with, with what they're doing and what they're doing is, is just even more uh, in demand than it, it's ever, ever been, right? And so this is a, just a, a picture, a kind of rapid uh, speeding up of, of what is actually going to happen over a, a prolonged, longer period of time due to all of these types of uh, societal shifts, right? And so uh, hopefully this, this will serve as a, a wake-up call for, for companies that when things re revert to quote-unquote back to, back to normal, when, when this particular uh, crisis is, is over, uh, that companies will think, well, this can happen again in, in a short-term burst like, like it's happening right now, but it's also going to happen for sure uh, in in different ways. Uh, oh, if we think about our business uh, from now till 10 years from now, uh, and what we do is likely to be dramatically different, the environment we're in is likely to be dramatically different, uh, and so if we don't plan for that change over time, then we're going to be shutting down just like businesses are shutting down right now. Well, it seems sort of a sad place to end, but I think it's a good place to end, Andrew. <laughs> Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Well, well thank you for having me. It's been, it's been great. Enjoyed and thanks it. to my guest, Andrew Ward. The book he is writing with fellow Lehigh business professor, Josh Erig, is called Shift Happens. You can visit Andrew's website at thegreatdivides.com. That's divide with an S, so thegreatdivides.com. This broadcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh business blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh business thought leaders, please visit business.lehigh.edu slash news. You can follow us on Twitter at Lehigh Business. Thanks for listening, everyone.